As I remember last time, we did not quite get through chapter two. In fact, we didn't really even come close to getting through chapter two. And I want to say a couple of things before we jump back into it. One of the things that I said early on is the Bible, and specifically Jeremiah, are teaching how to tell what's true. There's two questions. One is, how do you tell what's true and what's not true? And then the other one is, when you find out what's true, why is it so hard to communicate that to other people? Presumably, Jeremiah, who's talking to and for God, is speaking the truth. And we have several problems. One is, as we read it, we don't understand what he's saying, even though we can read the words because of translation problems and language drift. And the second thing is, even people who do understand the language and the words still don't believe it. And the question is, why? And the thing that is important about this is being wrong is important. In fact, I used to believe this myself when I was back in the church. I believed that the differences among the churches is mostly style. But there are actual differences in understanding, and those differences are more important than we think they are. One of the things that Jeremiah is going to say later on in the book is when he says, I, you know, I saw how far Israel had gone astray. I thought, well, gee, they're the common people. You know, the ones who have simply gone to synagogue and just heard air or talked to them. So I went to the people who should know better, the priests and so forth, and they didn't know any better either. So there's a real problem figuring out what's true. And part of that problem is words do not convey truth. Having been educated in Greek logic, we tend to think in terms of something being true if the words all match. So if I were to say, to use a silly example, all women have long hair, she has long hair, therefore she must be a woman. As long as the premise is true, then that whole statement is true. That's not how it works biblically. Words only have truth insofar as they correspond to objects that are true. Therein lies the difficulty, because it's not how we're used to thinking of it. An object is a thing or a concept, and it doesn't have to be a physical thing. So to use a simple example that you're all familiar with from English literature, I could say Ray is a true man. Ray has the attribute of truth, which is to say Ray behaves and acts in a way that you would think of when you think of the concept of a man. His actions, his behavior, his looks, everything corresponds to what the idea is of a man. So Ray is a true man. In old English literature, that concept survives, and it really has nothing to do with the words so much as it has to do with the objects that the words represent. Now, one of the corollaries to what I just said is the only way we can know Ray is a true man is by observing him for a period of time. So concepts that are true are things that have been proven by observation over a period of time and can be trusted. That's the biblical definition of something that's true. And it's the same thing with any other biblical truth. You only know something is true by experience. You observe it for a period of time and see if it behaves according to the concept that you've attached to it. And if it does, then it's true. If it doesn't, then it's false. There's going to be an example later on in, in the book here where 
the people are going to come to the temple. And they're going to say, oh, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And they're standing right in front of the physical temple. And Jeremiah says, you're lying. That is not the temple of the Lord. That has become a den of thieves. In other words, it is not true anymore. So even though the building is there, you know, with the Jerusalem stone and all that kind of stuff, and they're still sacrificing animals, and everybody's coming up in front of it and saying, oh, the temple of the Lord, here we are, we're safe in the temple now. No, what you have just said is a lie. Because the things that go on in that place and your attitude toward that place are at variance with what the Torah would say the temple of the Lord is. So in that case, somebody standing in front of the temple and saying, oh, the temple is in fact lying. And that's the difference between the Greek way of thinking and the Hebrew way of thinking. In the Greek way of thinking, what you do is you have words that are symbols for things, and as long as you have manipulated the symbols in a way that's consistent with the rules of logic, the result that you get is true. That's just the way it works. That's not how it is in biblical speak. And what we do is we come to the Bible with this Greek understanding of what truth is, and we lay it over the words in the Bible, because all we have in front of us are the words, and we think that the words in the Bible behave the way that the words do in Greek logic, and they don't. The reason I'm saying that is because we're going to come up on one of these here in a paragraph, and, I, and so I want to sort of get you primed, so when I say this, you'll say, ah, oh, okay, now I see what you're saying. And by the way, if you want to read a good treatise on this, I recommend Yoram Hazoni, uh, The Philosophy of Hebrew Scripture. He's got a whole chapter on this concept. So I'm going to sort of take, take a run at it, and I'm going to come back here maybe to verse 20. So I'm in chapter 2, verse 20. For long ago you broke your yoke, tore off your yoke bands, and said, I will not work. On every high hill and under every verdant tree you recline as a whore. I planted you with noble vines, all with the choicest seed. Alas, I found you changed into a base and alien vine. So I will suggest that he planted true seed, but what has come up has not matched what he expected to have come up given the seed that he planted. I'm reading out the Tanakh, by the way. 21. I planted you with noble vines, with the choicest seed. Alas, I found you changed into a base and alien vine. Though you wash with natron and use much lie, your guilt is ingrained before me, declares the Lord. How can you say, I am not defiled, I have not gone after Balaam? You're going to see this coming up several times. And I use the example of standing in front of the temple and saying, we are the Lord's people and we're standing in his temple. And God saying, no, you're not. What you just said is a lie. Here they are saying that we have not gone after the balls. And he is saying, your behavior says that you have. How can you say, I am not defiled, I have not gone after the Baalim? Look at your deeds in the valley. Consider what you have done, like a lustful she-camel restlessly running about, or like a wild ass used to the desert, sniffing the wind in her eagerness, whose passion none can restrain. None that seek her need grow weary. In her season they will find her. So again, what he's comparing Israel to, obviously, is a she-animal in heat. And one of the things that a she-animal in heat does is the male doesn't have to work very hard to find her. That's the metaphor. He's saying the same thing about Israel. None that seek her need grow weary. In her season they'll find her. In other words, her lustful behavior is such that the ones she wants to commit adultery with don't have to work very hard to find her. She finds them. 25. Save your foot from going bare 
and your throat from thirst. I have no idea what that means. It's a, it's a metaphor of some kind, and I don't know what it means. So save your foot from going bare and your throat from thirst, but you say, it is no use. No, I love the strangers, and after them I must go. All right, so Israel, in the face of the rebuke of the prophet, says, no, I'm going after the idols. Now, the question you have to ask yourself is, why? These folks were closer to God than we are. They had the priesthood, they had the temple, they had the sacrificial system. They were less than a thousand years out of the desert. So they are almost 3,000 years closer to the manifestations of God than we are. They have prophets in their midst who speak accurately with the words of God. Why under those circumstances would you go after the Baalim? Assuming these are not stupid people, and they're not. And assuming these people care about the truth, and they do. How do we know these people care about what's true? They're also going to seers, to witches, to fortune tellers. Why would anybody go to a seer or a witch or a fortune teller unless one believed that that person would be able to give him some insight that he could not otherwise get? Why do people have their palms read? Because they want to know. Why do people read horoscopes? Because they want to know. Why do they go to seances and stuff? Because they want to know. Certainly there are lots of people in that business that are charlatans, but the people who are going to them are going to them because they want to find out something that's true. And they will go to these witches, necromancers, fortune tellers, whatever, in order to find that truth. So it's something they care about. But again, understand that it's not because people don't care. It's because God works differently than people expect and they are not satisfied with the way God works. Why does Saul go to the witch at Endor? Because God won't talk to him. So he goes to a witch to find out what's going on, to find out what's true. He desperately wants to know, and he's lost his connection to God, and God isn't talking to him anymore. And so you're going through your life, and you're praying to God, and God isn't coming through with this clear crystal voice that penetrates from one ear to the other and say, turn thou left and go to the 7-Eleven or whatever it is. And so what you do is, well, maybe this card reader can tell me something. But understand that these people know the word of God probably as well or better than you do. And they have got real honest-to-God prophets who speak for God in their midst. And they still go to these it's all because they want to know. We're not going to turn back to God because we don't perceive that we get what we want from God. We don't get the answers we're looking for from God. Looking for a better answer. All right, verse 26. Like a thief chagrined when he is caught, so is the house of Israel chagrined. They, their kings, their officers, and their priests and prophets... In this section, he is going to use Israel to mean the northern kingdom and Judah to mean the southern. Whenever you see Israel here, think northern kingdom, because that's what he's saying. So, like a thief chagrined when he is caught, so is the house of Israel chagrined. They, their kings, their officers, their priests and prophets, they said to wood, you are my father, to stone, you gave birth to me, while to me they turned their backs and not their faces. 
But in their hour of calamity, they cry, arise and save us. So they have gone to idols for their day-to-day spiritual connections. But when they are about to be up to their hips and hairy Assyrians, they turn back to God and say, arise and save us. That's what the sense of that is. Just one more thing. An idol is anything that you turn to to get something that you should be getting from God, regardless of what that thing is. If there's something you should be getting from God and you go somewhere else, the thing that you go to is an idol. Sort of root definition. That's how you can recognize you're dealing with an idol. So, for example, if you really, 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 really like your pickup truck and you wash it every week and all that kind of stuff, that's not an idol. It may be a waste of time, but it's not an idol. Because you're not trusting in that truck for something that you ought to be getting from God. 28. And where are those gods you made for yourself? Let them arise and save you if they can in your hour of calamity. For your gods have become, O Judah, as many as your towns. Now notice what he said here. He's speaking to whom? Judah. And he is speaking about Israel. So he is saying to Judah, Israel is embarrassed and chagrined because they said to a stone, you are my father, and so forth. And then he turns and says, your gods have become, O Judah, as many as your towns. In other words, you have as many gods as you have towns. So he's talking about Israel to Judah. 29. Why do you call me to account? You have all rebelled against me, declares the Lord. To no purpose did I smite your children. They would not accept correction. Your sword has devoured your prophets like a ravening lion. So if you go back to Leviticus 16, what he says is, as you go away from me, these things are going to start happening to you. And the purpose of these things happening to you is to wake you up and turn you around. Much like when your two-year-old defies you, you pick the little sucker up by his shirt collar and swat him across his bottom. Not that you're trying to injure the kid, you're just trying to get his attention and bring him back to where he is. And that's what God is saying here. To no purpose did I smite your children. In other words, I swatted Israel, and they didn't pay any attention. The two-year-old just wouldn't pay any attention. Your sword has devoured your prophets like a ravening lion. All right, now what's the function of a prophet? To speak for God to the state, mostly to the king. So a prophet's job is he gets to walk into the throne room, and he gets to tell the king what is. He gets to grab him by the stacking swivel and say, listen to me, O king, this is what God says to you. That's the function of a prophet. And what God is saying here is, you killed him. I'd send you prophets to do what prophets are supposed to do, and you just killed them. 31. O generation, behold the word of the Lord. Have I been like a desert to Israel, or like a land of deep gloom? Then why do my people say, we have broken loose, and will not come to you anymore. His question is, have I treated you poorly? Have I not kept up my end of the covenant? And given that I have kept up my end of the covenant, why are you saying that you're not going to come to me anymore? Can a maiden forget her jewels, a bride her adornment? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. And again, to a bride the things that she gets on her wedding day are very precious. Typically gifts of betrothal or gifts from her husband. And she would no longer lose track of those than she would lose track of one of her children. So what he's saying is, 
Can a maiden forget her jewels or bride her adornment, yet my people have forgotten me? In other words, I should be as valuable to them as the wedding gifts and jewels that a bride gets on her wedding day is to her. 33. How skillfully you plan your way to seek out love. The love of whom? Idols and strangers. The strangers in the sense that they bring foreign gods with them. How skillfully you plan your way to seek out love. Why you have even taught the worst of women your ways. In other words, you are so depraved that you are teaching other prostitutes. Moreover, on your garment is found the lifeblood of the innocent poor. You did not catch them breaking in. What does that mean? According to the Torah, if somebody breaks into your house at night, defending yourself and your property, you're allowed to shed blood. And what God is saying here, I have found on your garment the lifeblood of the innocent poor, and you didn't catch them breaking in. In other words, this is just murder. Yet despite all these things, you say, I have been acquitted. Surely his anger is turned away from me. Lo, I will bring you to judgment for saying, I have not sinned. What is being said there? I will give it to you in Christianese. I have said the sinner's prayer and I am saved. That's exactly what that says. Let me read it to you again. You say, I have been acquitted. Surely his anger has turned away from me. Isn't that the same as the sinner's prayer that you hear on every Christian radio station? Boy, you say this little prayer and you're instantly forgiven and everything's okay. And what they're saying is, I have gone through the temple stuff, brought my sacrifices, and I'm acquitted. And now God will save me. And God is saying, no, I won't. Lo, I will bring you to judgment for saying I have not sinned. How you cheapen yourself by changing your course. You shall be put to shame through Egypt, just as you were put to shame through Assyria. From this way, too, you will come out with your hands on your head, for the Lord has rejected those you trust. You will not prosper with them. In other words, they're entrusting military alliances. And when it says when you, come, you will come out with your hands on your head, this is an expression of grief and anger. In other words, you will go to Egypt and to Assyria and try and make military alliances to save yourself. You will come to grief. Chapter 3. The word of the Lord came to me as follows. If a man divorces his wife and she leaves him and marries another man, can he ever go back to her? Would not such a land be defiled? Now you have whored with many lovers. Can you return to me, says the Lord? This goes back to Deuteronomy, where if you divorce a wife and she marries someone else and he divorces her, then she cannot go back to her original husband almost a direct quote out of the Torah. Look up to the bare heights and see. Where have they not lain with you? You waited for them in the roadside like a bandit in the wilderness, and you defiled the land with your whoring and your debauchery. And this goes back to the business with the she-animal in heat, and the, the statement that once she's in heat and she's looking around, the guy doesn't have to work very hard to find her. And what it says here in that same vein is you lay like a bandit. And passers-by, you'd grab them and, and fornicate with them. Verse 3. And when showers were withheld, and the late rains did not come, you, in the brazenness of a street woman, you refused to be ashamed. Just now you called to me, Father, you are the companion of my youth. Does one hate for all time? Does one rage forever? 
That is how you spoke. You did wrong and had your way. In other words, when she went off and he turned off the rain, like he said he would, she then puts her hands on her hips like a fishwife and says, are you going to be mad at me forever? Come on! Sort of a brazen, what do you mean turn off my water? That's the sense of it. Verse 6. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what rebel Israel did? Now Israel here is the northern kingdom. Going to every high mountain and under every leafy tree and whoring there, I thought, after she has done all these things, she will come back to me. But she did not come back. And her sister, faithless Judah, saw it. So, talking Israel and Judah now. I noted, because rebel Israel had committed adultery, I cast her off and handed her a bill of divorce. Yet her sister, faithless Judah, was not afraid. She too went and whored. Indeed, the land was defiled by her casual immorality, as she committed adultery with stone and with wood. And after all that, her sister, faithless Judah, did not return to me wholeheartedly, but insincerely, declares the Lord. So the idea here is, Israel fell into adultery. God sent the Assyrians, cleaned her off. Judah watched that whole thing happen. And Judah did not mend her ways. Didn't learn a darn thing. In fact, in verse 10, After that, her sister, faithless Judah, did not return to me wholeheartedly, but insincerely. So what they did is they resumed the trappings of religion, but their heart was not in it. Verse 11, And the Lord said to me, Rebel Israel, the northern kingdom, has shown herself more in the right than faithless Judah. So notice rebel Israel and faithless Judah. It's been over and over and over again he said that. Rebel Israel and faithless Judah. And at the end of the day he says rebel Israel is actually better than faithless Judah. She didn't have an example. Verse 12. Go, make this proclamation toward the north and say, Turn back, O rebel Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look at you in anger for I am compassionate, declares the Lord. I do not bear a grudge for all time. Only recognize your sin, for you have transgressed against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among strangers under every leafy tree, and you have not heeded me, declares the Lord. Now again, remember when this is being written. This is being written during the time when faithless Judah is about to be sanded off by Babylon. And what the prophet is now saying is, turn to the north and speak. So who's he speaking to in the north? Israel, who got scattered to the north. So what he's saying is, call to Israel and say that, I will not look on you in anger, for I am compassionate. I do not bear a grudge for all time. Only recognize your sin. Verse 14. Turn back, rebellious children, declares the Lord. Since I have espoused you, I will take you one from a town and two from a clan, and bring you to Zion. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart, who will pasture you with knowledge and skill. So who's he talking to? Israel. And he's saying, you're not all coming back, but some of you will. Verse 16. And when you increase and are fertile in the land, in those days, declares the Lord, men will no longer speak of the ark of the covenant of the Lord, nor shall it come to mind. They shall not mention it or miss it or make another. In that time they shall call Jerusalem throne of the Lord 
and all nations shall assemble there in the name of the Lord at Jerusalem. They shall no longer follow the willfulness of their evil hearts. In those days the house of Judah shall go with the house of Israel. They shall come together from the land of the north to the land I give your fathers as a possession. The greater Exodus. The new covenant. It's a statement of the new covenant. The point is, he in fact intends to bring Israel back. And he also intends to bring Judah back and put them back in the land where he promised to Abraham. I will tell you, the last thing that you want is to have an Old Testament prophet come through your town. Old Testament prophets don't show up until things are bad enough that God finally sends somebody and says, go straighten them out there. Verse 9, I had resolved to adopt you as my child, and I gave you a desirable land, the fairest heritage of all the nations. And I thought you would surely call me father and never cease to be loyal to me. Instead, you have broken faith with me as a woman breaks faith with a paramour, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. So this is speaking to Israel. 21. Hark, on the bare heights is heard the suppliant weeping of the people of Israel. For they have gone a crooked way, ignoring the Lord their God. Turn back, O rebellious children, I will heal your afflictions. Now, one of the big things in Jeremiah here is there are consequences to believing the wrong stuff. And believing the wrong stuff eventually leads you into exile and death. Remember we talked last time of where they had forsaken the springs of living water and instead hewn out cisterns that leak? And in either case, they're changing one source of water for the other, and water is life. Without water, you die. And so instead of the truth, they have got something that isn't quite true. It's a cistern that looks like it holds water, but it leaks. And that leakage will eventually lead you to dying of thirst. Not immediately, but over a period of time, that leaky cistern will cause you to die of thirst. And so what he's saying here in 21, on the bare heights is heard the suppliant weeping of the people of Israel, for they have gone a crooked way ignoring the Lord their God. Instead of following truth, they have followed error of some kind. And over a period of time, being in error, even if it's only slightly at first, leads you then to a place of exile and death. And it is simply the process of the way God has set up his universe that if you don't operate according to the way God says to operate, behave truly, then eventually you wind up with idolatry and death. So turn back, O rebellious children, I will heal your affliction. And one other thing there, the old cliche, but you know, if you're traveling 10,000 miles, if you're off by half a degree, by the time you get 10,000 miles away, you can be hundreds of miles from where you thought you were. This is not talking in terms of distance, it's talking in terms of time. So Israel has been in existence for a thousand years maybe, no, not that long. And a small error accumulated over a trip of 800 years winds up being way off in the wrong place. The metaphor is time instead of distance, but it's the same metaphor. And the thing about God is he is alive. And so he is able then to issue a correction and meet you wherever you are in your error in the weeds. And he can say, ah, you're now 100 miles off correcting a tenth of a degree, which is what got you off, isn't going to be enough. You need to swing over here and turn to the left and head this way. 
But you understand what I'm saying? It says, turn back, O rebellious children. So it is not enough simply to straighten out. You've got to come back. And he's able to do that. 22 and a half. Here we are. We come to you, for you, O Lord, are our God. Surely futility comes from the hills, confusion from the mountains. Only through the Lord our God is there deliverance for Israel. So what is this? Futility comes from the hills and confusion from the mountains. You know, you go to the tarot reader, and she perhaps gives you something that works, and you come back to her again and again and again. Eventually, since it's wrong, it's going to, going to lead to confusion. And he's saying confusion comes from that, and only through the Lord our God is there deliverance for Israel. Only, in other words, only coming back to the truth. For the shameful thing has consumed the possessions of our fathers ever since our youth, their flocks and herds, their sons and daughters. Let us lie down in our shame, let our disgrace cover us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers from our youth to this day, we have not heeded the Lord our God. What he's saying is the consequences of being wrong are not just spiritual, they're also physical. Our ancestors had flocks and herds and they drank honey from the rock and you know, all those kinds of things. And as we drift away, we've lost all that. And all that accumulated wealth that they have is now gone because of the path that we have trod. Well, you know, when you're on your journey at 10,000 miles and you're only half a degree off, until you pass a landmark that isn't the right one, you don't know where you are. The point that Jeremiah is making in all of this is the Word of God is true. And if you don't follow the Word of God, then what happens is the errors will accumulate and they will have both spiritual and physical consequences. In other words, the truth matters. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.